Father in heaven, we uh, come together today with a desire to learn more about the potentials that you provide to us to fulfill your will and in our gardens. And I pray today that you'll be both with me and, and with the hearers that we might glean some understanding of things that you would have us know. Please abide with us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk a little bit about season extension. As I told you, we cycle crops both indoors and outdoors, and we could do some things that are, that are pretty interesting, even in, in the middle of West Virginia. And the first thing that I want to point out as far as uh, ways to increase your productivity is to throw away your planting calendars. You know, and in our state in West Virginia, the Extension Service puts out a beautiful annual calendar every year. And on the days that you're supposed to, you know, uh, turn your soil and the days that you're supposed to plant beets and the days that you can plant broccoli, all those things are laid out on the calendar uh, to help encourage home gardeners. And on many of the seed catalogs, you also have a list of uh, planting dates for different parts of the country sometimes. And if you try to follow those guidelines, you can indeed produce a good crop, but the likelihood of you being successful as a market farmer is pretty slim because the reality is that our calendar dates for planting crops are far broader and far wider than what those calendar dates give you. An important, really important aspect of uh, the cycling I'm going to talk about, talk about is that you always start and use transplants wherever possible. We pre-start all of our plants except those things that are not practical to transplant. If you're seeding carrots or if you're seeding uh, a cornfield or a bean field, then you're going to want a direct seed. But anything that can be transplanted successfully should be. Um, and this is important because while one crop is finishing off, I have another crop uh, ready to put back in its place immediately after I remove the first crop. I have plants that are five to seven weeks old already going into the ground when I make my, my, my crop cycle. And that's really important. And what that does is it allows us to get at least three crop cycles outdoors in West Virginia. And that's like... You know, if I have an acre of, 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 of crop, that's turning that one acre into three acres worth of production with a lot less infrastructure than three acres of production requires. Inside of our high tunnels, we can get as many as five cycles per year. And one of the considerations is you want to make your, your selections, uh, understanding your, the length of your season and also using the days to maturity of the particular crops that you select to help you in that process. Obviously, if we want to get three crop cycles, I look dominantly for varieties that have a shorter period of maturation. And I'm talking again here about looking for varieties for market farming, more so perhaps than home gardeners. We all have our preferences for crops that we grow in our home gardens, and some of them may you know, be a longer season crop. I do that too, but in terms of generating income, I want to get as much productivity out of that ground as possible. <clears throat> I'm going to talk a little bit about using season extension in the way of low tunnels and high tunnels. For those of you that question whether it's worth the investment for a high tunnel or not, my unequivocal answer is absolutely yes. 
And uh, there are, I'll, I'll talk a little bit at the end of the program this morning about ways that you can actually get one of those and maybe even get paid to build your own high tunnel. I'll talk to you about the NRCS program. I'm going to talk about laying out our beds in an efficient manner that also has some influence on our crop cycling and how to be efficient with our management of space in the garden. And uh, that includes talking about the spacing of our plants and using what I call a block planting design. My plants all start here. In fact, the, uh, I have one high tunnel that I have a small heater in, and this is where we start all of our transplants. And uh, that facility looks just like this right now. Uh, I've got brassicas started in there that uh, we'll be uh, planting into the high tunnels probably in early March. I have quite a few onions that I'm uh, germinating right now for spring planting. And what I want to emphasize about this in terms of transplanting is you can grow a lot of plants in a very small space. This bench here is about eight feet long. And as you can see, it's two trays wide. When that bench is completely full with those, those plug trays, those are 288 cell plug trays. I've got over uh, almost 6,000 plants on that bench. They stay in these plug trays this time of year uh, for about two to three weeks. And then they get shifted to six packs. And here we go. Uh, they get shifted to six packs and I grow them on for an, uh, another few weeks and uh, bear in mind the only heat I have in here just keeps this greenhouse above freezing. I'm not trying to heat this because frankly it's expensive to heat a greenhouse. So we do have, I have a, a hot water heater that circulates hot water under the bench on the left, the, the, the plug tray bench. And that runs overnight. That's on a timer that runs during the hours when the sunlight is not on the greenhouse. It goes off in the morning. And the intention here isn't to keep ideal growing temperatures. If you can afford to do that, that's fine. I haven't found that to be cost effective in our climate because we have lots of, of uh, periods of time when uh, the temperatures are, are in the low teens or single digits. And for every degree of temperature rise in a greenhouse, the energy input goes up exponentially. So to go from, I, I try to hold mine at 40 degrees or so, and if I wanted to move that to 50 degrees, it would cost me three times as much energy to do that. To go from 50 degrees to 60 degrees costs almost 10 times as much energy. So the curve, as far as your energy input, goes up very dramatically with each degree of temperature rise. And it, at, at those lower temperatures, things germinate more slowly. But in terms of, of you know, my scheduling my plants, I just start germinating earlier. Uh, typically, in the, in the spring with my brassica crop, it can take two weeks to, to, to 17 days to germinate broccoli, for example. In the fall, when I'm doing my fall crop, it takes about two and a half or three days to germinate that same seed. Uh, if I were applying heat, I could still do that in that short period of time, but this allows me to, uh, uh, to save the energy cost just by using, uh, using a longer period of time. Uh, after uh, they are uh, well-rooted in the plug tray, we transfer them to the six packs that you see here. There's a number of different methods for doing this. What I've found to be more efficient for me, since I'm a one-man operation uh, growing on 
almost two acres. Uh, I use reusable uh, six packs and I simply transfer from the plug trays to the six packs using a commercial uh, potting mix. I, I use uh, uh, a Fafford number two mix that works both well for the plugs and for the, uh, the seedling trays. At this stage, when they're in the seedling trays, I'll start irrigating them uh, with the compost tea as well as water and uh, allow these to grow uh, on for, for a few weeks before planting. The nice thing about uh, the spring planting season is temperatures are cool. These things grow slowly, and that means that I have uh, quite a window of opportunity to be able to hold them in the greenhouse before they get too big and setting them outside. And in the other cycles, later in the spring and often in the fall cycle, you've got to have your timing between when you plant the seed and when it grows in the ground pretty close because the plants will outgrow these six packs quite quickly at that time of year. Uh, but in the early spring and, and late winter, uh, you, uh, the, uh, you have a lot more leniency in time. I can, I can make these plants strong and viable and give them a period of about uh, five to six weeks between when I could put them in the ground and when I have to put them in the ground so I can pay attention to what the weather does in allowing that. Advantages of starting in plug trays and going to six packs rather than planting them directly in the six packs is obviously space. And uh, it also gives you an opportunity to do a plant selection at that point because anything in the plug tray that doesn't really develop well, uh, I can cast aside when I put it into the plug tray. That just goes back into compost and, and I don't have to try to struggle with dealing with a weak plant. And the same is true when I go from the six packs into the ground. I can uh, do a selection process there also so that by the time I'm actually placing these plants in the ground, I've got a good, strong, viable plant on every growing space that I have on my farm. And that's important. That is dramatically important in terms of our potential to get a return per square foot on the farm during the course of the year. When I plant, uh, the plants. I plant them in a block style. This is some uh, cauliflower that we have planted and anticipating cold temperatures. This was just a, a, a little less than a year ago. This was February of last year that I took this photograph. And at that time of year, things can still be pretty cold where we are. So I use actually two uh, a two-tunnel system here where I plant the plants in the high tunnel and then when cold weather is, uh, is imminent, I'll put frost cloth over those hoops to put a tunnel in a tunnel to give me uh, a little additional uh, protection. Now, our, our, our block system is such that I have beds in the field that are five feet wide and I also have some beds that are 42 to 48 inches wide within the configurations of the blocks that I use. And all of, my, uh, my, all of the smaller tubes that you see there are bent as a five foot uh, uh, hoop. And when I need to use them on narrower rows, I just turn them sideways a little bit so that I have one consistent hoop size for everything that I do and it fits all the beds that way. In terms of block planting, what I do is I select varieties, and this is an important point. 
Um, you know, I think there's another seminar today on succession planting, but what I've found to be more efficient for me in, in the markets that I have, and since I only have these two hands to run the whole farm, is that when I select varieties, I select them for their days to maturity. Both of these beds are cauliflower, but they're two different varieties of cauliflower. One will mature in about 72 days, the other one takes about 85 days. So there's you know, a, a number of days difference between their, their maturation. And I use that maturation rate to help prolong the season that I have cauliflower available without having to plant those two or plant the same variety, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the 10 days or two weeks apart. Do you follow me? Um, there's great advantage in doing that. Uh, number one is I found it's always worthwhile to plant more than one variety of a single crop because each year you have different influences on how that crop is going to perform. One year, for example, one variety may produce very well. The next year you may have disease or, or, or insect pressure or different weather conditions and another variety will outperform that one. This gives me the, uh, the, the, the genetic diversity in the garden so that if something is, is, is going to reduce the capacity of one crop to produce, the other one will make up for it. So that's just food security issue there. But it's also very beneficial to use this method so that when this first bed is harvested, the one on the, on the left here is a shorter variety than the one on the right, I can harvest that entire bed, work that bed, get it replanted while the rest of the, the cauliflower crop is finishing, and work in blocks. Now the blocks that I use are 50 feet long. I have relatively short high tunnels. And there's a reason for that too. These shorter high tunnels allow me to ventilate the high tunnel simply by opening up the end walls. I don't have roll-up sides on my high tunnel. And the reason that I prefer that is number one, it gives me different environments for growing different crops that I can control a little bit differently. But if I should have a pest or a disease outbreak, I've got it contained in a smaller area. So instead of having two or three large high tunnels, I have seven smaller high tunnels in terms of length. And by opening the end walls, I get enough ventilation in those high tunnels so that I don't need the roll-up sides. Every time you roll up that side, anytime you're moving the plastic on a, a, a high tunnel, you, you shorten its life. Uh, the abrasion on the bows and other things, if it's, if it's appropriately applied, if you get your, your, your plastic on tight enough, then I've had plastic that has lasted as long as nine years. I use six mil plastic. Plastic's getting more expensive. It used to be not a big deal to change it. But I've had plastic that I haven't had to change for nine years because once that goes on the structure, it stays there and it's not being moved. Uh, we put it on pretty tight so that it doesn't chafe on the bows and we get much more longevity out of the plastic too. Yes. Um, I have two different sizes. I have a 16 foot wide house that's 54 feet long and I have 20 foot houses that are 52 feet long. And that was the next thing that I was gonna get to is the length of the house. You, I, I don't want to exceed 54 feet has been my discovery. And the way uh, this becomes important is I orient the high tunnels to the direction of the prevailing breeze in the summer. 
And by doing that, I have the prevailing breeze entering one end of the high tunnel and moving through the high tunnel for natural ventilation. I want to keep my systems as simple as possible. I don't want to have to, to power you know, fans or, or, or use any additional energy input during the summer months. And by orient them, orienting them into the direction of the prevailing breeze, the air movement through the high tunnel uh, is, is, is not overheating very much in the center of the high tunnel. As the air comes in, it gets into that high tunnel environment. The infrared rays are warming that air. And if that tunnel is 100 feet long, by the time you get 50 feet into the middle of that tunnel, uh, you, you, you've got temperatures that in, can increase 10 or 20 degrees above what the outside air is coming in. By keeping it at about 50 feet, uh, that increases only, you know, four, four to, to, to maybe six degrees, so that I'm taking 80 or 85 degree outdoor temperature, and in the middle of the tunnels, it is a little bit warmer, and it, as, as, as you go through the rest of the tunnel before that air moves out the other side, uh, you've still got reasonable temperatures for growing things. In a 100-foot tunnel, at that same temperature, you, you, might, you might peak inside the high tunnel in the second half of the high tunnel with temperatures that are 120, 130 degrees. And that's obviously not great growing conditions for most crops. Uh, some crops do like that kind of heat if you're growing, uh, you know, vine seed, uh, things like melons and squash, okra in your high tunnel, uh, then those high temperatures are not so much an issue. But if you're growing heirloom tomatoes, then, you know, they shut down and actually stop growing when it gets up to about 95 degrees. So uh, the, the short tunnels are for that purpose. And since my tunnels are at 50 feet, I size all of the other blocks in my field at 50 feet too. And this is, is just uh, what works out practically for me because that means that irrigation tubes that I use, I use drip irrigation, all of my drip irrigation tube is cut at 50 feet. And I can move it around the farm in any location and in any place and use that same uh, piece of drip tube. Uh, if I'm needing frost cloth for protection on something, either outside or inside the tunnel, everything's in these 50-foot increments, which makes it very efficient for me uh, to, uh, to cover anything at any, anywhere on the farm, inside or outside. Now, I do have a field that is 400 feet in length from one end to the other, but when I plant that field, I still plant in, in, in blocks that are 50-foot segments. And when I uh, need to irrigate a longer stretch, I just connect two of those drip tubes together with a, with a joint connector if I've got, you know, a long row down the field. But I still plant my varieties based on that 50-foot increment. <clears throat> the other thing this does for me as a, as a market grower is it makes my inventory control a whole lot easier. If I get a phone call from a customer saying, Bob, I'd like to get 600 heads of lettuce this week, uh, I don't have to go out and, and, you know, count down the row how many lettuce plants I've got. I can just go look into that block and know that I've got 200, uh, uh, you know, 200 heads of lettuce in every 50-foot block that's there and count the blocks. And, and it makes, you know, the inventory management a lot easier, too, uh, to do it in that block strategy. <clears throat> this, is, again, is that cauliflower that I showed you in the earlier picture. Uh, uh, we've got two different varieties here. Um, this, these particular varieties are about two weeks apart in maturity. So that when I harvest that first block, uh, I've got two weeks to get it, you know, marketed. 
and then I've got another flush of crop coming two weeks later. In the two-week period between those two blocks, I've got the opportunity to get another crop in the first one that I've planted, get it up and mature and growing and keeping the cycles going. So you understand what I'm um, trying to convey here and saying that it's <clears throat> really valuable for us to, you know, to, to make use of all this space. We've got a lot of investment in those greenhouses or in those high tunnels, and uh, we've got uh, you know, a relatively short outdoor growing season in West Virginia. So the only way that I can make a living is by extending the season on both ends and then cycling even during the crop cycle. Uh, most of my neighbors that, that uh, plant gardens up there uh, wait until the middle of May until the frost is passed to plant their gardens, and uh, by the time September comes along, they're done. They're planting their, their potatoes and their green beans and their tomatoes and their squash, and uh, by, the, by the middle of September, they're finished, and they put their gardens to bed. Um, I start uh, in the high tunnels planting in March. I start planting outside in April, and I continue until uh, some period between the holidays, between November and December, with most of my outdoor production. Uh, right now, I still have Brussels sprouts outside because they'll continue all the way through January. Now, the key to uh, knowing uh, when to stop planting things in the winter is that day length becomes important. <clears throat> in uh, our neck of the woods, so to speak, uh, we enter what's called a Persephone period about the middle of December and that lasts until about the middle of February. And that's a period of time when the sun is, is both low enough on the horizon and the day length is short enough that things just don't grow. It doesn't matter what the temperature is, it doesn't matter how hot it is, things just really kind of stop growing. And that means that for all of the crop that I want to sell through the winter, I have to have it at a stage of maturity before that Persephone period begins. So my planting dates are based so that the crop matures uh, shortly after Thanksgiving. Because if it isn't mature at that point, it's not going to mature until it undergoes the winter stress and starts growing again around the middle of February. Um, what I do though, is I allow nature itself to provide cold storage for those crops. Because things like beets and carrots, lettuce even, uh, will hold up just fine uh, in kind of a dormant, quiescent state during that period of time, and I just harvest it on an as-needed basis to, uh, to fill the orders that I have. Uh, this is broccoli, similar situation. I've got three different varieties of broccoli in this high tunnel, all uh, timed to come out at different times. Um, uh, this is uh, probably a fall shot here of the fall crop of broccoli. I've still got the end walls on the end there, and you can see I've just got one big opening in the end of green, uh, the greenhouse that has a window on it for controlling the temperatures. In the summer, I remove the plastic on the ends and just let air move through there. Uh, and I, I put the panels back in in, uh, in October, usually, and remove them in April. And in the meantime, I can control the temperature with that window that you see there and the door that's on the other end. But I'm just pointing this out again. You can see my drip tubes there. All of those are 50 feet long. All of those are, are uh, uh, designed to be used anywhere on the farm. That's the broccoli when it's getting ready to harvest. Again, different varieties. You can see this is a picture of one variety. It's all maturing nice and evenly. 
And oh, I'm sorry. I, I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> That's the broccoli a little bit farther along, and then this is just to, to show you that the same variety is going to mature nice, nice and evenly. And uh, that's nice because I get a large harvest and I can hold broccoli in my cold storage for about seven days before I really try to, to sell it. So depending on when my marketing periods are, I can kind of harvest according to what the demand of the market is. And then this is, uh, is the final product there. Um, we're able to grow some really interesting uh, quality in West Virginia. You know, a lot of folks think that, well, Bob lives in West Virginia. We're looking for a country property. If he's the growing expert, I, maybe we ought to look at West Virginia too, because the soils must be really good there. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. We actually have some of the worst soils in, in the country right now. And when we were considering where to locate, um, we, we've been there for 10 years now, but when we decided that we wanted to buy a farm of our own and uh, get started with our own training program, we really had the liberty to go anywhere in the country. Uh, and uh, we prayed about it and said, Lord, we want you to put us where we can be most useful. And since West Virginia is, uh, is the number one or number two state on an annual basis in obesity and diabetes and lifestyle issues, we... Uh, uh, you know, we kind of perceived that uh, the Lord wants us where we can be the most benefit to a community and we're better than where lifestyle diseases are, are, are such a, a great problem. Um, also, the resources in Virginia in terms of water, isolation from contamination from GMO crops and other things like that meant that we were in an area that wasn't, um, you know, surrounded with commercial agriculture endeavors where I have to worry about uh, pesticide drift and that type of thing. I was talking with Alan Seiler uh, earlier this week and he was lamenting with me that because his neighbor treated a pasture next door with 2,4-D, he had a real disaster. And uh, those types of things are easy to avoid in West Virginia because I don't have neighbors that grow anything. It's all woods, mountains, and forest. Um, one of the other things that's really valuable, and this is a point that uh, home gardeners really struggle with, is that as soon as you've reached the, the, the peak of your harvest, you want to you uh, uh, remove your crops as soon as you've reached that, 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 that top of the curve and start coming down the other side in terms of the peak of your harvest. And I'm talking here about things like green beans or tomatoes even. Uh, and uh, roguing is the term basically for pulling these plants out when they've done the job that you want them to do. And most growers, in fact, I'd say the vast majority of growers are guilty of leaving their crops in the ground too long. And this has some really deleterious effects on your garden. Um, once you start losing that productivity, you know, plant, plants have some interesting characteristics. They all have hormone systems that help with their defenses against insects and diseases. And once the plant flowers and fruits, the, the hormone systems shift in such a way that the plant becomes much more susceptible to disease and pests. You probably observe this in your gardens. Your older plants are the ones that really struggle. You know, with us, as we get older, we become immune to various different strains of flu through our life so that by the time we're, we're older, if we have a strong constitution, I'm resistant to a lot more things than maybe an infant would be. 
With plants, it's kind of the opposite. The older they get, the more susceptible they are to these influences from fungi and virus and other things too. So if we leave our plants in too long, we're not only delaying the period of time that we can put something more productive back in that place, but we're also inviting more problems in the garden. And of course, all of us battle with weeds and the longer the crop is there without some form of tillage, especially if it's got a large canopy like a bean bed, uh, the more weed pressure we're going to see too. And the more of, those, more of those weeds will have opportunity to go to seed too if we're not diligent in cultivating them. So it helps keep the garden disease, pest, and weed free. And more importantly, especially for market gardeners, is it maintains our quality. Um, all of us have observed, I'm sure, that as the crop ages and we're getting to that last picking of green beans, for example, I like using green beans for example, I don't know why, but uh, as we get to that last picking of green beans, we get a lot more misshapen beans, beans that are not fully developed, less uniform. Uh, they usually get a little bit tougher. And, you know, if we're introducing those to our customers after they've gotten the good stuff from us, uh, sometimes it's a little discouraging for them too. So we want to maintain a high quality of crop. Those are the ones that, the, the, those latter ones I was describing are the ones that we eat and the ones that go in our cans. But, uh, you know, for, for presenting a crop to our customers, we want to have really good, excellent, consistent quality. And uh, roguing is also really valuable for doing that. An example of what I'm talking about here, this is just one of the, the, the garden beds we have. Again, it's, it, this one's both 50 feet wide and 50 feet long. Uh, I'm holding this like it's a microphone. Um, but the beans that you see on the, edge of the, uh, on the edge of the bed there, instead of waiting until they've been you know, fully developed and past their prime, and we've got weeds growing in there, and the Mexican bean beetle is starting to infest things and, and instead of uh, trying to, to nurse every last little bean I can get off of those plants, we pick those twice. We pick them when they're fully uh, loaded with beans, we'll wait uh, about 10 days to two weeks and do a second picking on those which gets the vast majority of the crop and then we'll plow those into the ground and plant something behind it. This is how we can get those three crop cycles outdoors in West Virginia. And that's really advantageous to us as commercial growers to get that additional production, to maintain quality, and to uh, keep things uh, relatively disease and, and uh, pest free within our gardens. One of the things that I'm really excited about uh, is that for the past seven years, um, I have not sprayed any form of pesticide on my farm. I haven't treated it with anything, organic or otherwise. And part of the reason for that is the way that we manage our crops. There's other strategies that I employ too. I use trap cropping. I pay very close attention to the timing of the crops so that I'm not simultaneously planting my crop when the, when the pest is emerging from the soil to uh, to feed it. We're one of the few folks in our area that successfully grows lots of eggplant outdoors. Most people have their eggplant destroyed by flea beetles shortly after they transplant it. Instead of putting it in the ground early, I wait after I see the flea beetles emerge from the soil for about 18 days, and then I plant my eggplant. It means that it comes 
you know, into productivity later in the season, but my eggplant is virtually pest free because there hasn't been a host there for that pest when the pest emerged from the soil. So between planting, uh, timing, trap cropping, uh, selection of the right varieties, uh, we've been very fortunate that we haven't had any insect issues, uh, you know, for seven years now. Uh, we do occasionally have a hot spot of insect damage, but it's very rare and nothing that's economically uh, uh, been problematic for us. Uh, the thing I want to emphasize is that you've got to pay attention to what you can do on the early end of the season and what you can do on the late end of the season. And block planting helps in developing these strategies. <clears throat> And one of the things that I like about block planting is that it maintains an orderly environment. I have seen evidence that our God is a God of order. I don't know that just from reading it, but I've seen evidence of it. And if God is a God of order, then I want an orderly environment in my garden. Uh, you know, some of the, the, the more recent developments in in gardening methods and techniques, especially applying this to permacultures, there's really kind of a haphazard interplant, mix everything up, make it look more like, like nature, uh, a kind of attitude towards gardening. And I've not seen a single permaculture system that's set up that way that has worked for more than about three years. Uh, things just fall out of balance. You end up with either uh, uh, an imbalance of, of, of uh, disease, Soil disease pressure, imbalance of insect pressure, it's just, you know, it's, it's not an orderly environment. And the angels can't attend to it and help us the way they can when we're in an orderly environment. And I seek, I, I seek the Lord's help with every step I take in the garden. Block planting also simplifies our, our, our crop inputs. It makes, as I said, our yield assessments simpler. And it simplifies our crop rotations because I'm not working with simple bands in the garden. I'm working with large blocks in the garden. Uh, it gives me the opportunity for uniformity of infrastructure, no matter what type of irrigation you have. Uh, and the other advantage, too, that is very uh, important to me is that it helps me budget my time. Uh, in the... I don't want to go to that one yet. But in, in the, the pictures that you saw, the garden that was outdoors, uh, everything is a five foot by 50 foot bed. And if I've got brassicas planted in that, I know how long it takes me to cultivate that. And uh, if I've got five beds to cultivate, I know before I even start cultivating how much time I'm going to spend on that activity. And that's very, very helpful to me because most of us, when we're faced with a job like that, we just figure, well, I've got to go out there and stick with it till it's done. But we don't really have a concept of how much time to allocate that day for that task. So it helps me budget my time also. And the other thing that I should have pointed out and didn't earlier is that my plant spacing is also a very important element of my weed control. And this is a real advantage with block planting. When I'm planting transplants, I put a plant out there that's very strong, it's very vigorous, and I, uh, uh, you know, it's off to a good start. The bed has just been tilled, so it's got a, a huge head start on all of the weeds. But not only that, by the time that plant reaches about a third of its growing cycle, the plant canopy itself becomes a living mulch over the bed. 
and shades out further weeding. So most of the time, I can cultivate only once after I've planted those plants and I'm done with my weed control. Uh, I, I typically transplant in about 10 days to two weeks later, depending on, on the crop's vigor and what the weather is doing. I'll go through with a stirrup hoe and I'll clean up whatever seeds are germinating. And uh, after that, the plant canopy will start to close over. I get shading and I have far, far fewer weeds that way. If you're planting in a row configuration, you've got open sides on both of that plant row where weeds are germinating faster and growing faster typically than the crops do. It's a real nightmare to keep up with. So beds and blocks are very helpful that way. Yes. I have one question. I'm supposed to hold this to the end. Can we do that? I'll give you time. Okay. Make a note of it, though, so you don't forget. All right. And other aspects of, of uh, crop cycling is the season extension methods that we use. These are pictures of low tunnels. You folks, if you're in the market gardening track, are probably familiar with this. Uh, my low tunnels, as I said, are, are made out of, of very simple materials. And I have uh, 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 hoops there that are made from half-inch EMT. That's electrical uh, conduit, basically. You can buy that for about $2.25 a stick at uh, Home Lowe's or Home Depot. We bend those uniformly so that it's five feet across the bed. All, those, all the hoops that we have are uniform five-foot hoops. And then we simply cover them. In our instance, we use frost cloth that is about an ounce and a half per, uh, per, per square yard. Uh, frost cloth comes in different thicknesses, and uh, uh, you can get it from as little as half an ounce per square yard up to about two ounces per square yard. Using the frost cloth, we sacrifice a little bit of the sunlight that we get in the winter, which is important. Uh, but the advantage of the frost cloth is that this particular product gives us about an eight or nine degree uh, protection on these crops, which is important when it gets down into the teens, especially. Um, the ounce and a half frost cloth is heavy enough so that there's no center supports or anything. I simply tie it to a stake at the end of the row, as you see here, stretch the frost cloth down the row, and I've got little plastic clips that go on the end bows. Uh, there's four clips on each end, so when, it, when I need to remove the cloth, it's very quick and easy just to slide my weights aside there and pull the clips and, and remove the frost cloth so that I can maximize uh, growing conditions when they're best. Uh, the high tunnels on the, on the back there, um, uh, this must have been a nice day because the, uh, the doors are open. We had just been harvesting kale out of this bed, which is why the, the front one is uncovered. But they're awesome for being able to have things like this. We're harvesting carrots right now. And uh, uh, the uh, quality of the winter produce that we grow is absolutely fabulous. Those, I, I will tell you, those are the best tasting carrots I have ever tasted. And one of the advantages of growing into the colder weather, whether it's beets or carrots or spinach or Brussels sprouts or anything else, is the cell division that takes place is so slow that the sugars and the carbohydrates accumulate in the crop and it's just a marvelously better quality crop. You know, when I'm selling carrots in the summer, I've got to compete with price with anyone else. I've sold winter carrots for as, as, as much as $6 a pound uh, because 
people, once they taste them, uh, just want more of that stuff. It's good. It's like a lollipop with a green top. And a lot of this you're going to have to learn uh, through exper experimental knowledge, uh, you know, what works for you. Uh, and what crops are going to be suited to the environment that you have. One of the, the hard lessons that I learned, uh, moving from Virginia to West Virginia, we moved uh, literally due west from one side of the Blue Ridge Mountains to the other side of the Blue Ridge Mountains and discovered right away that not only is it colder, but it's far cloudier. Um, I was, uh, as in, in, in my youth, I went to the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, up in the Pacific Northwest, which is known for its dreary gray weather, and it was. I remember my freshman year at college, I arrived there on August 31st on a beautiful, bright, sunny day. On September 1st, it got cloudy and started drizzling, and it didn't stop until January 5th. And then on January 5th, it cleared up for two days. It dropped to about five degrees. And then on January 6th, it clouded up and drizzled again. It didn't really rain. It just drizzled. I used to just pray, please, Lord, let it just rain. But it was just drizzled uh, until the day before I left to, to, to go back to Northern California at the end of the school year. Um, well, the same is true in West Virginia. I've discovered that our winters are dark and very cloudy. And that was not something that I expected or anticipated. So I've had to adjust some of my growing schedules uh, to the fact that we have far less sunlight there. And uh, even though the day length is almost identical to where it was in Virginia, we got a lot less sunshine, so the crop cycles take longer there than they do. Um, this is some lettuce that we've got growing again here. This is just to emphasize the block planting thing. We've got some red romaine on the end of a a row there that's going to mature faster than the green romaine is. Uh, this is getting towards the end of the cycle here, but there might be a, a, an eight or ten day difference between where the red romaine is and where the green romaine is, and when I harvest that red romaine, I've got plants to transplant into that spot that's going to, you know, again save me time in that, in that cycle. A couple pictures here. We'll go back to this one. Um, We've got a few minutes left here for questions, and I've kind of covered the important uh, points that I want to make. Again, transplant, transplant, transplant. Everything that you can do in transplants, do in transplants. And as I said, I start mine out in those 128 uh, or, or uh, uh, 188 cell packs and transfer them to six packs, but I've also experimented for the last couple of years in using a 72 cell plug tray that I found can be very effective and useful in the fall. In the spring, in order to get good strong plants, I need them in the greenhouse in those six packs for a period of five to six weeks before they're really fully rooted and good strong plants because the temperatures are so low and the light levels are low. And in the spring, I want a really strong transplant to put in the ground because soil temperatures are still fairly cold. In the fall, though, I can get away with a smaller transplant in the garden because the soils by then are very warm. And with the warm soil, the root systems take off and the plant, plants take off. Well, I'm talking now about crops that I plant in September and maybe into early October 
when our soil temperatures have accumulated all that energy through the summer. So I transplant directly from a 72 cell plug tray into the ground. I, I, I skipped that step of, of taking them from the plug tray and putting them in the cell pack. And I've found that to be pretty efficient. It works pretty well. The plants are a little bit smaller, but because growing conditions are better at that time of year, it takes about the same amount of time to get the plant to maturity. And it's worked really well for us and saved us both soil mix and the step of doing that shifting. So that, uh, that is something too that I wanted to suggest to you if you're using transplants already is maybe look at, look at a, using a smaller transplant in the, in the fall. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.